0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is
1: advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Academy Award-winning crimes, I share stories of the darker side of the Academy Awards. Speaking of the awards, will you be watching when the ceremony goes live on March 4th? The Oscars is a glamorous event when all of Hollywood comes out to shine on the red carpet. We want to know which A-list stars will arrive together, what they'll be wearing, and most of all, who will take away the coveted little gold statues. So far this year, The Shape of Water and three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, are being talked about as the film's most likely to take home the Best Picture Prize. Gary Oldman is predicted to win Best Actor for The Darkest Hour, and Frances McDormand, one of my favorite actors is said to be the one to beat for her role in Three Billboards. But of course, everyone has their favorites and you just never know who will actually take away the prize. All we do know is that it will certainly be entertaining to watch. In this episode, I'll detail the life of a film director who was nominated many times for an Oscar and would eventually win. But when he did, it was quite a controversy. I'll tell you about his drama-filled life, one of tragedy and loss, as well as a very serious criminal charge That was levied against him right at the peak of his success. There are many twists and turns in the life story of the award-winning director, Roman Polanski. And while you may think you know it, I'll share some details you might not have heard before. This is Chapter 2, The Life and Times of Academy Award-winning Director, Roman Polanski. The 75th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony was held on March 23, 2003. To say it was a memorable event is an understatement. Steve Martin hosted the awards that year, while the war in Iraq raged on. Perhaps for this reason, the viewing audience for that year's awards was the lowest it had ever been since Nielsen began tracking viewers in 1974. When Michael Moore won the Oscar for Best Documentary for Bowling for Columbine, his anti-war, anti-President Bush acceptance speech created an awkward tension in the Kodak Theater. The mood became no less awkward when Adrian Brody, winning Best Actor in a Leading Role for The Pianist, manhandled the presenter Halle Berry, grabbing her in a big hug and planting a prolonged kiss on the startled actress. But the standout moment in an evening of standout moments was the announcement of the much-anticipated award for Best Director. The nominees were Rob Marshall for Chicago, Stephen Daldry for The Hours, Pedro Almodovar for Talk to Her, Martin Scorsese for Gangs of New York, and Roman Polanski for The Pianist. Public sentiment was with Scorsese to win, as many felt he was due, having been passed over several times for such outstanding films as Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and Goodfellas. But alas, it would still not be Scorsese's year. Harrison Ford was given the honor of announcing the winner of the Best Director Award. And the winner was... Roman Polanski. Incidentally... Ford had a leading role in Polanski's 1988 film, Frantic, and he seemed pleased at the announcement. As the applause rang out, everyone looked around the room, but many knew Polanski was not present to accept his award. In fact, he had not set foot on U.S. soil in 25 years. In 1978, Roman Polanski had left the country one day before he was to be sentenced for having unlawful sex with a 13-year-old girl. Harrison Ford accepted the award on behalf of the director. If you've ever heard the name Roman Polanski, you most likely remember him for one of three reasons. You might know him as the director of the 1968 horror film Rosemary's Baby, that would become a cult classic. Or you may remember him as the husband of the beautiful actress and pregnant mother to be, Sharon Tate, who was so brutally murdered by members of the Manson family in 1969. Or finally, you might know him as the 43 year old director and photographer who was arrested and charged with the rape of a 13-year-old girl in 1978, and subsequently fled the country. All of these events occurred in the life of Roman Polanski. He's been lauded, grieved for, and despised, all in one lifetime. And yet, as I dug into the story of his life, I found so much more. I will share the story with you as I know it, and as well, I will have a Hollywood insider tell you about the man himself. He can shed light on him from a first-hand knowledge, having met and spent time with Polanski himself. For all his accomplishments, you may also consider Roman Polanski as a man with extremely bad luck. Bad luck seemed to follow him beginning very early in his life. He was born in France in 1933 to Polish parents. His father was Jewish. His mother was half-Jewish, but had been raised Roman Catholic. Both of his parents were agnostics. Roman himself would, in his adult life, say he was an atheist. His father, a painter and manufacturer of sculptures, was born in Poland and decided to move his family back to his home country in 1936. Roman's bad luck would begin when, just three years later, the invasion of Poland by German forces occurred, marking the beginning of World War II. The Polanskis were living at ground zero for some of the worst persecution of Poland's Jewish citizens the city of Krakow. Nazi racial purity laws there were used to exploit and terrorize the Jews of Krakow. By 1940, of the city's 68,000 Jewish residents, only 15,000 were permitted to remain, with the others sent away to be resettled in the surrounding rural areas. The remaining 15,000 were forced into an area that was previously inhabited by only 3,000 people. One apartment was to house four complete families, Many others were forced to live on the streets. The Polanski's shared small cramped quarters with seven other people for the next two years. It was from his experience living in the Krakow ghetto between the ages of six and eight that Roman drew from when he co-produced and directed the movie The Pianist. The film was based on a memoir of a Polish-Jewish pianist who survived living in the Warsaw ghetto and being transported to a concentration camp after the Nazi invasion of Poland. The parallels to Polanski's own life are clear down to the detail that both men became celebrated artists after surviving the Nazis. The Nazis began liquidating the Krakow ghetto in 1942, deporting the Jewish citizens to concentration camps. On February 14, 1943, they came for Roman's mother, sending her to Birkenau, part of the Auschwitz concentration camp, where she was immediately killed in the gas chamber. She was four months pregnant. A month later, Roman's father was sent to the Mauthausen camp in Austria. Roman was left behind and at first was sheltered by a Roman Catholic neighbor who'd promised his father she would look out for him. He assumed the name Romec Wilk and attended Catholic church with the family and learned to pray. A priest grew suspicious and arrived at the family's home to ask the young boy questions he should have easily been able to answer if he had been raised Catholic. He did not pass the test. Roman had to leave so that the family would not be punished for helping him. The penalty for harboring a Jew in Poland at that time was death. So from the age of 10 to 12, Roman hid in the Polish countryside, living on his wits and struggling to survive, with other Jews who were hiding from the German soldiers. He was constantly in a state of near starvation, and witnessed many horrors including violence and death. He was once shot at by two German soldiers when he ventured too far out of the woods. The bullets missed him by inches. By the end of the war, three million Polish Jews had been killed. His father managed to survive the work camp he was sent to, and when the war ended in 1945, he was reunited with his son. They returned to Krakow. His father remarried a year later. Roman would always recall his fondest memories before the war, being the time he spent in movie theaters. The first film he ever saw was Snow White, which was released in 1937. Roman would have only been four years old, but he never forgot how magical it felt to see the characters come to life on the screen. He would say that from the time he was a young boy, he knew all he wanted to do was to be part of that world somehow. After the war, Roman continued to see as many movies as possible. Whatever small amount he could scrounge together often went to purchase a theater ticket. It was a way to escape all the tragedy, horror, and sadness he had encountered in his short life and enter a different world. But there were still terrors to be found and Roman's bad luck seemed to lead him to it. Some of his friends would later say he brought some of the bad luck upon himself. He was often impulsive and reckless. One day in 1949 when Roman was 15, he agreed to meet a young man who promised to sell him a bicycle at a good price. The young man's name was Janusz Juba and he agreed to meet him at a location in central Krakow. Juba met him carrying something wrapped in a newspaper and told Roman to follow him to a nearby bunker, where the bike was located. The bunker was an old air raid shelter left behind by the Nazis. Roman's friend told him not to go. Something seemed off, but Roman just said he'd be fine and followed Juba. Juba led Roman through a dark winding set of passageways to an enclosed room some 30 feet underground. He told Roman the bike was in the corner. When he took a step towards it and was positioned in front of Juba, he felt a blow to the back of his head. Juba had a rock concealed in a newspaper, which he struck Roman with. Dazed, Roman saw his attacker standing over him, demanding money. When he told him he had none, Juba stripped him of his watch and then found his wallet with cash, taking that as well. Then he left the injured and bleeding boy lying on the floor of the concrete bunker. Juba was spotted by a truck driver who was making the rounds picking up trash. He saw the young man running, his clothes smeared with blood. He tackled him and Juba was soon under arrest. Roman was taken to the hospital where it took 18 stitches to close the gash on his head. Juba was soon identified as the person the police had been searching for who had attacked eight others before Roman. He used the same ruse each time, luring his victims away to a remote location before bashing them over the skull with a rock or other heavy object. Three of his victims did not survive the attack. Juba was Krakow's first known serial killer and Polanski had been his ninth intended victim. Juba was found guilty and hanged for his crimes in December 1949. This part of Roman Polanski's life story is not well known, owing most likely to him being linked to a much more infamous killer 20 years later, Charles Manson. A few years later, Roman Polanski began attending the National Film School in Lodz, He acted in a few films and then directed his first film, Bicycle, in 1955. In this short film, he draws from his experience with the killer, Zuba. Polanski directed more projects at the film school and became recognized in his field. After he graduated, he directed the feature film, Knife in the Water, in Poland. It would be chosen for the first of many Academy Award nominations for Polanski's work, this one for Best Foreign Language Film. Polanski then left Poland for England having secured his reputation as a sought-after film director. He began working immediately, directing three feature films in the next three years. Within six months of arriving in London, he was already a celebrity, invited to parties with movie stars and the social set. While filming his third movie, Dance of the Vampires, in 1966, he met the beautiful American actress Sharon Tate, who had been hired for a role in the film. They grew close on the set and began dating. By the time the film wrapped up, Tate was living with Polanski in his London apartment. Sharon Tate, born in Texas, had traveled all over the world with her army colonel father and her family as a child. She entered beauty pageants and began taking small film and television roles, finally getting her big break in the feature film The Eye of the Devil in 1965. Her star began to rise, and after she finished her work on the set of Dance of the Vampires, she returned to the United States to take a role in a film starring Tony Curtis. It was a beach party film, popular at the time, but she thought it was terrible and was disappointed in the outcome. But in 1967, she was signed to play a main role in the movie version of Valley of the Dolls, which had been a best-selling novel. Her co-stars included Patty Duke and Judy Garland. The movie didn't get good reviews, but Sharon Tate was said by critics to be a standout giving a luminous and tragic performance as Jennifer North. She was now a bonafide Hollywood star. Meanwhile, she had continued her romance with Polanski, and they married on January 20, 1968. That same year, he directed Rosemary's Baby, his first Hollywood movie. It became a smash at the box office. It was a horror film about a young woman who moves into an apartment building where, unknown to her, her neighbors are the leaders of a satanic coven. She is used in one of their rituals and becomes impregnated with Satan's child. Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate were now Hollywood stars on the rise. They were often in the company of Hollywood royalty, like Warren Beatty, Joan Collins, Jane Fonda, Kirk Douglas, Jack Nicholson, and other celebrities. They were also young and in love, and their bliss was multiplied in late 1968, when Sharon found out she was pregnant. The young couple decided it was time to put down roots. On February 15, 1969, they moved into a big house in the Los Angeles Hills, located at 10050 Cielo Drive. Sharon Tate was very pregnant in the summer of 1969. She was spending time at her home in Benedict Canyon, while her husband, Roman Polanski, was away filming the movie The Day of the Dolphin in London. He was expected to return to Los Angeles on August 12th, in plenty of time for the birth. In the meantime, he'd asked their friends Wojciech Frykowski, a friend of his since his youth in Poland, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, the heiress to the coffee fortune, to stay with Sharon until his return. On August 9th, Sharon Tate was murdered in her home, along with Frykowski, Folger, Tate's friend and former boyfriend, Jay Sebring, as well as Stephen Parent, a teen who was visiting the property's caretaker. Polanski received a terrible phone call telling him of his wife's murder. She had been found in the living room, stabbed multiple times, and with a rope tied around her neck. The other end of the rope was tied to Jay Sebring, who had also been stabbed. The bodies of Folger and Frykowski were found on the front lawn. They'd been stabbed to death as well. Frykowski had also been shot twice. Stephen Parent's body was found in his car. He had been ambushed as he was driving away from the home and shot. Polanski returned home, not to anticipate the arrival of his child, but to bury his wife and unborn son. He was devastated. Later, he would say in interviews that his time with Sharon was the only true time of happiness he'd known in his life. As often happens in Hollywood, rumors began to swirl. The killers remained unidentified for months, and everyone had a theory. Some pointed to Roman Polanski himself as having been involved in the murders, for no other reason than he'd directed a movie about a pregnant woman who'd been used in a satanic ritual. Perhaps, they surmised, he was involved in having his wife killed, or at least had made her a target of a real satanic cult because of his movie. But detectives were able to put together enough leads to come up with the likely suspects. This was confirmed when a member of the so-called Manson family, led by cult leader Charles Manson, talked to her cellmates while locked up for another crime. Susan Atkins detailed her participation in the murders, and Charles Manson, along with other members of the family, were arrested, tried, and ultimately convicted of the murders. Polanski would throw himself into his work after his wife's murder. His next film, Macbeth, released in 1971, was panned by critics for its graphic violence and sex. The next film he directed was a comedy, about a young hippie hitchhiking through Europe. It didn't receive much attention. But his next film, released in 1974, was the one that would put Roman Polanski back on the Hollywood map. Chinatown is now considered a classic of American cinema and one of the best American mystery crime films. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, with nods going to its stars Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. Roman Polanski was nominated for Best Director but lost out to Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part II. However, he did win the Golden Globe for Best Director that year. Roman Polanski had gained a reputation as a man who liked young girls. Very young girls. While in Paris to direct and also star in the film The Tenant in 1977, Polanski was on a double date with a friend. The foursome returned to Polanski's hotel, and the friend left, while his date stayed. Polanski took both girls to bed. His friend's date was the young German actress named Nastasia Kinsky. She was 15 years old. Two years later, she would star in his film Tess, but would deny the two had ever been sexual. While in Paris, he was asked to guest edit the Christmas edition of French Vogue magazine. He photographed Kinsky for the magazine. Soon after, Polanski returned to the U.S. where he was scheduled to begin filming The First Deadly Sin. After the Vogue assignment, he was asked to shoot a feature for Vogue Oma magazine. They wanted photographs of adolescent girls to go along with the feature article. Back in Los Angeles, he mentioned the assignment to a friend, who suggested that the younger sister of a girl he was dating was an aspiring model and might be a good candidate. On February 13, 1977, Polanski met with Samantha Gailey and her mother in Woodland Hills. Samantha was 13 years old. Her mother, Susan, was an actress who'd had bit parts in television shows like Policewoman and Starsky and Hutch. Polanski showed Susan the Vogue Christmas issue and told her that his current assignment was to feature, quote, young girls seen through his eyes and possibly an interview. Polanski then scheduled a second meeting a week later to take photos of Samantha. When he arrived on February 20th, Samantha and her mother picked out a variety of clothes for the photo shoot. Then Samantha, without her mother, was driven by Polanski to a hillside near her home where he took some shots of her outdoors. She changed clothes several times and then, according to Samantha's later testimony, Polanski asked her to take off her top. She complied. Polanski would later admit to photographing the 13-year-old topless. He then returned Samantha home. She did not tell her mother about the topless photos. The following month, on March 10th, Polanski returned to Samantha's house to pick her up for another photo shoot. He first took her to the home of his friend, the actress Jacqueline Bissett. He took several photos of Samantha there, but there were many guests milling around the house. He then called the home of another friend, Jack Nicholson, to ask permission to take some photos at his house. Nicholson wasn't home, but the caretaker gave him permission to come by. When they arrived, Samantha said she was thirsty. Polanski opened a bottle of champagne and gave her a glass, which she drank. He took pictures of her sipping the champagne. Samantha then called her mother to say she would be home later than expected. Polanski decided to take pictures of the girl in the jacuzzi tub in the backyard. Samantha says at that time, he gave her a third of a pill that he said was a Quaalude. She took it. She says she must have been pretty drunk on the champagne by that time, or she wouldn't have taken the pill. He now told her to remove all her clothes and get into the jacuzzi. She did so. He took more photos. He then removed his own clothes and got into the hot tub with her. Now, Samantha said, she began to feel anxious. She decided to pretend she was having an asthma attack in order to get out of the tub. Polanski asked her to get into the swimming pool instead, and she did. He also went into the swimming pool. Soon after, she excused herself to go to the bathroom. When she was leaving the bathroom, Polanski approached her and told her she should go into Nicholson's bedroom and lie down. Samantha says she then asked to go home, and he said he'd take her home in a bit. She said she felt dizzy from the pill and the alcohol, and Polanski began kissing her. She told him to stop and testified that, quote, I was kind of dizzy, you know, like things were kind of blurry sometimes. I was mostly just on and off saying, no, stop, unquote. Polanski then had sex with her. In his version, he says they emerged from the pool and began kissing each other. She was not unresponsive, he said, and also said he could tell she was sexually experienced. Polanski never denied having sex with the 13-year-old, but only claimed it was consensual. While they were in the bedroom, Nicholson's girlfriend at the time, Angelica Houston, arrived at the house. Samantha says she rushed out first, while Polanski remained behind to speak with Houston. In her testimony, Houston would say that she remembered the girl as being very tall. She said the girl was leaning against the kitchen cabinet while she spoke with Polanski. She was wearing high heels, she remembered. Polanski drove Samantha home. Her mother and sister were both home, and Polanski came in to speak to them, while Samantha says she made a quick retreat to her bedroom to cry. Polanski began showing Susan and Samantha's sister the photos he'd taken. He even showed them the topless ones. Susan says she was shocked and froze. However, she said nothing to Polanski and he soon left. Samantha didn't tell her mother what happened, but that night her boyfriend came over and she was overheard by her sister relating the events of that day. Her sister told Susan, who then called the police. Officers arrived to take a statement and Samantha was taken to the hospital to be examined. The next day, March 11, 1977, Roman Polanski was arrested at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. In his room, they found his camera containing photos of Samantha in Nicholson's jacuzzi, as well as a prescription bottle of Quaaludes. He was booked into jail, but released that night on $2,500 bail. A grand jury was convened to hear testimony on March 24, 1977. Samantha testified in the LAPD's investigation, led by Detective Philip Van Adder, who would later become well-known during the O.J. Simpson case, laid out the evidence including the photos and quaaludes that corroborated Samantha's version of events. As well, Polanski had admitted he'd had sex with the girl, but described it as consensual. However, he also acknowledged that Samantha had feigned an asthma attack while in the hot tub. This suggested to the prosecution that she had tried to stop Polanski's advances. The grand jury charged Polanski with rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, lewd and lascivious acts upon a child under 14 and furnishing a controlled substance to a minor. Both sides wanted to reach a plea bargain. For the victim's side, she nor her parents wanted her to testify in open court. Rape victims were routinely raked over the coals in trials at that time. Every portion of their life was subject to intense scrutiny. Since Samantha was a minor, her family really didn't want her name plastered all over the headlines. As it was, information about the girl was presented to the grand jury, including her sexual history. The defense was asking for specific details of her private life and planned to present those details in court. Polanski's lawyers also wanted a plea bargain, for obvious reasons. Douglas Dalton was hired by Polanski, and Roger Gunson was the prosecuting attorney. The judge assigned to the case was Lawrence J. Rittenband. Ritten Band was a well-known judge in Hollywood, having presided over celebrity-studded cases in his Santa Monica courtroom. He was the judge in the Elvis and Priscilla Presley divorce, the Cary Grant paternity suit, and Marlon Brando's child custody case. The district attorney's office stalled the plea bargain process when they stated that the policy of their office was that Polanski only be allowed to plead to the most serious count against him, rape with the use of drugs. A guilty plea on this charge would carry a sentence of at least three years. Dalton used the high-profile nature of the case to try and persuade the DA to offer a plea for a lesser sentence. Samantha and her family wanted to withdraw from the case, knowing what kind of scrutiny they would be under. Because of this, the DA's office allowed Polanski to plead to the least serious charge he was facing, felony statutory rape. He entered a plea of guilty to this charge on August 8, 1977. The sentence would be left to the discretion of Judge Rittenband, at that time, judges were given a lot of leeway when it came to determining sentences. ban could have handed down a sentence of anything from probation to 20 years in state prison. With California's current stricter sentencing guidelines, a statutory rape charge would likely receive about three years in prison today. In comparison, in the year prior to Polanski's arrest, no one convicted of statutory rape in Los Angeles County was sentenced to state prison, and only a few spent some time in county jails. Three days before the judge was to announce his sentence, Rittenban called Dalton and Assistant DA Gunson to his chambers. He told them that he had decided to order Polanski to be sent to Chino State Prison for a 90-day evaluation before he set his sentence. There he would be evaluated to determine whether psychiatrists considered him a, quote, mentally disordered sex offender. Having already heard from previous psychiatrists in the case, they were pretty sure the report would come back in favor of Polanski's release. Then Rittenband said that the 90-day diagnostic study would, quote, constitute defendant Polanski's punishment and there would be no further incarceration. However, a diagnostic study, the lawyers pointed out, was not an appropriate punishment and should not be used as one. But Rittenband's mind was made up. The judge went further and practically scripted the upcoming sentencing hearing. He told Dalton that he should come before the court and ask for probation. Gunson, he instructed, should ask for a prison sentence. He wanted them to carry out this charade, even though they all knew what sentence the judge was going to hand down. The sentencing hearing was held, and Rittenband's instructions were followed. Polanski was ordered to undergo the 90-day study at Chino. However, Dalton asked the judge to stay the sentence until Polanski finished work on an upcoming project, the remake of the film The Hurricane. Writtenban agreed to allow a stay of 90 days, but privately told the defense attorney that he could continue to ask for an extended stay in 90-day increments until the film was complete. Polanski then flew to Munich to work on a distribution deal for the film. While there, he made the bad decision of attending an Oktoberfest celebration where he was photographed sitting amongst a group of pretty young girls. The photo made it into the U.S. newspapers, and the accompanying articles implied that Polanski was living it up and thumbing his nose at the American justice system. Judge Rittenband was furious, embarrassed that he was being called out by the media for going easy on the director. He ordered Dalton to get Polanski back to the States for a hearing to determine if his stay should be revoked. Dalton called witnesses, including the film's producer, Dino De Laurentiis, who testified that the director was in Germany on legitimate business. Rittenband didn't revoke the stay, but was no longer willing to extend it past the 90-day period. Polanski was sent to Chino Prison in December and completed his evaluation in 42 days, at which time he was released. The prison superintendent wrote to the judge, quote, staff are in agreement the granting of probation in this case would be in the best interest of all concerned, unquote. However, now Rittenben decided he had a problem with the diagnostic report. You see, the judge was harshly criticized by the press for the way he handled the case, and the public began to agree. When he found out the public was against him, band decided to get tough on crime. He called the lawyers into his chambers mere days before he was supposed to impose the final sentence, which was supposed to be that Polanski would receive no further punishment. He said he changed his mind. He told them he was thinking of imposing 48 days more of prison time for Polanski to make up the total of the 90 days of the original sentence, but only if Polanski agreed to leave the U.S. for good. But this was odd, because a state judge would be unable to enforce a deportation that would be an immigration matter. Dalton relayed the news to Polanski. Polanski now decided that if this was to be the case, that he might be facing a lengthy prison sentence, as well as be forced to leave the country, he had no reason to stay. He no longer trusted the American justice system. That evening, January 31, 1978, Polanski, without informing his attorney, boarded a flight to London and from there flew on to Paris. The next day, the judge issued an arrest warrant for the fugitive. Rittenban told the media that he planned to sentence Polanski in absentia. Dalton filed a motion to have Rittenban recused from the case. The judge had held press conferences and ex parte communications with the district attorney, either of which was grounds for recusal. The judge agreed to be replaced, but didn't admit to any wrongdoing. Polanski began immediately working in Europe, filming tests in 1979, and stage productions in Poland, France, and Italy. In 1988, he directed Frantic, starring Harrison Ford and Polanski's then-girlfriend, actress Emmanuelle Seigne. Polanski began dating Emmanuelle when he was 51 and she was 18. They married in 1989 and had two children together. He continued to direct films in Europe, working with the top actors of the time, including Hugh Grant in Bitter Moon Johnny Depp in The Ninth Gate, and Kate Winslet and Jodie Foster in Carnage in 2011. In 2002, The Pianist was released to critical acclaim. It won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and Caesar Awards for Best Film and Best Director. Then Polanski took away the Oscar for Best Director at the 2003 Academy Awards. Well, not literally. Polanski had been a fugitive from the law for almost 25 years and could not attend the Los Angeles ceremony. In 2008, Polanski's lawyers filed a motion in Los Angeles County Superior Court asking to have the case dismissed on the grounds that their client had been denied due process of law. They argued that Judge Rittenband had a conversation with Deputy District Attorney David Wells back in 1977 when Wells showed him the photo of Polanski at Oktoberfest in Munich. They had statements where Wells admitted showing the judge the photo, and pushing Rittenman to be tougher on Polanski. The defense attorneys wanted to make a case for prosecutorial and judicial misconduct and get the case at long last dismissed. Of course, Polanski would not be in court to hear the case argued. While Judge Peter Espinosa agreed there had been, quote, substantial misconduct that had occurred during Polanski's initial hearings, he also ruled that he was, quote, not entitled to request any affirmative relief from this court as he remains at large. In essence, the judge said there were grounds to dismiss the case, but a ruling would not be made unless Polanski showed himself in court, a risk Polanski was still not willing to take. But the motion to dismiss began to set off a series of chain reactions that Polanski did not anticipate. He was on the minds of the prosecution again after 31 years. At the same time, Polanski was set to be honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award in Switzerland at the 2009 Zurich Film Festival. The fact that Polanski would be attending the festival had been well publicized and now the United States Department of Justice served the Swiss Federal Office of Justice with an arrest warrant for Polanski once he set foot on Swiss soil. The Swiss authorities were required to comply with the request due to the Swiss United States extradition treaty in place. On September 26, Polanski was arrested at the Zurich airport by Swiss police. Polanski remained in jail for two months until the court allowed him to be freed on $4.5 million bail. He was allowed to stay at his chalet in the Swiss Alps and monitored by an electronic tag he was required to wear. While the legal wrangling between Polanski's attorneys and the U.S. courts continued, Swiss authorities announced on July 12, 2010 that they would not extradite Polanski to the United States and released him from house arrest. The extradition request was rejected in part because U.S. officials failed to provide the Swiss court some requested documents, including testimony from the original sentencing agreement, to determine if the 42-day evaluation at Chino did in fact constitute his entire sentence, as his attorneys claimed. If this was true, then the extradition request would have no foundation, they ruled. In 2015, the United States again tried to have Polanski extradited. This time they made the request to Polish authorities, They also denied it, stating to do so would violate the European Convention on Human Rights. Roman Polanski remains a free citizen in Europe. I want to welcome my guest, A.J. Benza, to the program. A.J. has been a Hollywood insider for years, starting his career as a reporter for the Long Island newspaper Newsday, before being hired to write a regular gossip column for the Daily News. He was the host of the E-Channel's program Mystery and Scandals from 1998 to 2002 and has appeared in many, many television shows and movies. He's also an actor, having appeared in Rocky Balboa with Sylvester Stallone and Ransom with Mel Gibson, among other films. He is now also the host of the podcast Fame is a Bitch, where he shares stories of crime, scandals, and all the behind-the-scenes true stories of the rich and famous. I discovered his podcast over the holidays and was hooked by all the great stories he tells stories that he has firsthand knowledge of, by the way, which makes them even more fascinating. A.J. met and talked with Roman Polanski during the time Polanski was living in Paris after fleeing the U.S. He so generously agreed to come on this podcast and give his impressions and opinion of Roman Polanski. I think of you as a Hollywood insider. You know a lot of the players and a lot of the stories that happened over the years in Hollywood. And and so for this case, I just wanted to get an idea of what did you come away with after meeting Roman Polanski and how did that happen?
0: What happened is I went to Paris, I believe in 90, 1996, and I was very good friends and still am with Robert Evans, the, the man who ran Paramount Studios and produced Rosemary's Baby, which was... Roman's magnificent film. And when I said, I'm going to go to Paris, he said, Bob said, you've got to meet Roman. I said, great. You know, as a journalist, I, I didn't anticipate that happening. So I went to Paris, had lunch with Roman, and we just talked like a couple of guys would about the business, about the industry. I found him to be very charming. You know, he knows how to tell a story. I, I didn't really get into specifics. I just wanted to be light and airy at that luncheon. Well, I came away feeling was that, uh, well, I'll give you a story. There was uh, a waiter who was giving us the menu, et cetera, and and he bent down and he found a baby bottle, you know, like a sippy cup that little kids drink out. And he kind of held it up as if to say, does anybody know whose sippy cup this is? And Roman joked, that's that's a little too old for me. But that kind of gave me a weird feeling because he's looking at a baby cup and he's making a joke about that baby would be too old for me. So again, this is 21 years ago where you can make jokes like that. And and, and nowadays I'm not saying that joke is a real knee slapper, but now you make a joke like that and you know, you lose everything. So what well, I came away with the luncheon from Roman was that um, he gave me a, a place to go for dinner with a woman I wanted to see. And he gave me his table at a very famous restaurant. He's a very giving, very, very wonderful kind of guy. But, um, he kind of told me that he was coming to America whenever he wanted. Because when I said to him, uh, you know, I can't pay you back. I don't know when I'm going to be in Paris again. He said, no, when I come to, when I come to New York, well, you, you will buy me dinner in New York? And he kind of winked at me. So I can't tell you that a magnificent detail about the rape trial came, came, to, came to fruition. But the fact that he was able to travel back and forth to America when we all thought he wasn't allowed to. It was kind of illuminating for me because I don't think a guy like him really cares what the government has to say. If he wants to come to America flying private and do what he has to do, he, he's obviously going to do that. And I think he's been doing that up until recently.
1: I mean, the story is still, you know, he has not been able to come here and there's been all these wranglings back and forth about it. And, you know, so that's what they that's the story that we hear.
0: He led me to believe he comes back when he wants He gave me a wink and said, I'll, I'll see you in New York. Uh, and I had no reason to doubt him. That's the way he acted, and I think that, that's something he could do. I don't know how much they keep a tab on private flights. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Right. But I think the government was a lot more lax before 9-11. Right. And uh, this, was, this was 96, 97. So, you know, it may have been happening. Yeah, sure. Um, I can tell you right now what's going on with these, with these movies, uh, whether it's Quentin Tarantino's movie, Uh, about Charles Manson and and Sharon Tate or this other independent movie starring Hilary Duff as Sharon Tate. I think that, uh, well, I know that Roman has nothing to do with uh, trying to attach a female in the role of Sharon Tate. There's a lot of stuff in the media that Quentin Tarantino is talking to Roman about who should star. And even with the Hilary Duff movie, there was talk that the producers reached out to Roman and he was working with them the truth of the matter is he has nothing to do with who would play Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, he signed away that right to Deborah Tate several years ago. So anything having to do with Sharon Tate, her sister Deborah is in charge of. So okay. don't, don't believe whatever you hear about Roman trying to land an actress for Tarantino or whoever. It's just not true.
1: Something that I had on my mind as I go through a lot of these cases that are <laughs> you know, celebrities or well-known figures in some way, or even wealthy figures. You're kind of in that environment. Does it seem to you that that's really just the fact that people who are accused of crimes, if they're celebrities or somebody well-known, that the victims, I mean, can victims get justice when that, that's the case?
0: It, yeah, they can get justice, but it is, it is a little more difficult. I mean, there's a lot of celebrities who've been uh, indicted on certain charges or arrested on certain charges. And they do seem to get what they want. And, and, and oftentimes don't serve an amount of time that's commensurate with the crime. That definitely happens with celebrities. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, uh, money talks and bullshit walks. And, and there's nothing like a celebrity, uh, who's, who's been arrested and facing time. We've seen it time and time again, where they either beat the case or, I mean, look, look just for instance, O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. I mean, O.J. Simpson was in jail, and, you know, he, he couldn't make money if he would—feasibly. None of us could make money if we were in prison. Mm-hmm. However, O.J., you know, Johnny Carson was walking into prison every day. He couldn't bring footballs into prison for O.J. to sign. So what he would do is bring in pieces of leather. For OJ to sign hundreds at a time. And then he would take that leather out of the cell and he'd bring it to the, the, the right people and they would sew it into the football. So those are things, that's one example. And then, of course, that football would sell for many, many dollars and OJ would, would pocket a significant portion. But that's the kind of detail that celebrities go to. If you and I were locked up, we would probably not have that kind of deal. Where we could sign something and make money. No doubt. But when you're when when you're not, when you're a big big star and you've got money, you got the right attorneys, you do whatever you want. So I don't think I don't think Roman has felt the full the full extent or the full brunt of the law regarding the uh, the rape all those years ago. I just don't.
1: And and what about like other celebrities? Because one of the things that I watched as I was researching this this case was. When he won the Academy Award, when he was still, you know, of course not here, he was in Paris at the time, I think, and he won the Academy Award. And you watch the audience, and people are, you know, jumping to their feet and applauding. Do you think that's typical? That's normal. That you just it's
0: it's normal out here. It's normal in this town. (laughs) It's normal in this town. They love to root for people like that. You know, you see people like Meryl Streep and countless others. Rose McGowan. A lot of people years ago gave in a standing ovation and wanted him. They wanted to sign that petition to, to allow him back to America. And these are the same people who who clamor and 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 demand rights for people who were sexually molested, etc. It's all. It's so hypocritical. I see it on a daily basis, and in particular, I see it during award season, where a lot of the people who wanted the best for Roman Polanski, um, they're sitting there in the audience and, and, and they'll denounce somebody else or they won't, go to the, they won't go to the stage because Casey Affleck allegedly paid off two women who, who claim he molested or raped or whatever. That, they throw a hissy fit over. Mm-hmm. But Roman Polanski, who raped a 13-year-old girl, him, they, they want the best for him. They want to make his movies. They want him back in America. And you're seeing the same thing, although recently it's finally changed with Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. But Woody Allen was attracting the biggest stars in the universe to do his movies. Right. It wasn't like these movies were blockbusters. It was all about every actor wants forever. Since I'm a kid, every actor wanted a Woody Allen movie on their resume. Mm-hmm. It just It's remarkable what it does to you. So everybody who's worked on his films before the allegations surrounding Dylan Farrow and Yi Previn, they can look back at their resume and feel great. Everybody since then, whether it's Alec Baldwin or, oh my God, there's countless people, mm-hmm. Justin Timberlake's hearing it now, they're all going to have to boycott, they're all going to have to denounce it, and they're all going to have to take those those dollars they made from his film and donate it to the right parts. Right. The world has changed. It's just a different world.
1: Yeah, I kept, I kept thinking of Woody Allen as I was you know, reading about Roman Polanski, and oh, it's so mm-hmm. similar, it's so similar that what happened.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: So one of yeah. the things that I really like about your show is that you just tell it like you see it, like you don't mince uh-huh. words at all, I love that, I think that is so refreshing <laughs> to just hear what you really think, and without, you know, trying to be politically correct or anything like that. Right. So yeah, the question I that, that yeah, I no. had, you know, thinking about that is, if we were go, go back to 1977, when this all took place, when this girl mm-hmm. was, was raped by Roman Polanski mm-hmm. and it came before the court, what do you think the correct sentence there should have been for him? Because I think they basically pled it down to statutory rape.
0: Yeah. Um, 1977, if I'm going to use the the, the the atmosphere of the time, it was a very sexually free era, um, statutory rape, even though it was in Hollywood, even though it was a fantastic auteur instead of some guy on the corner, that had a lot to do with the sentence. I think because he was who he was and because he made fantastic films and because he's in the business where women stand in front of a camera and, and the world visibly rapes them or uh, emotionally rapes them if you want to get really disgusting about it. I think because that were, those things were all in play, mm-hmm. Roman Polanski faced a statutory rape. We're seeing it now with this Nicole Eggert-Scott Baio story. Nicole Eggert was 14 on the set of Charles in Charge. Scott Baio was 25. It sounds gross if you put that in any other area outside of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. A 14-year-old kissing a 25-year-old, and as a father, I'd go to his house with a baseball bat. <laughs> However, in Hollywood, where the little girl is acting in a show and there's parental, there's, you know, there's supervisors there and guardians, etc., and tutors, it's all kind of okay. <laughs> but hormones still rage. Things are still said and feelings still happen. Those can't be governed by rules. Mm-hmm. They're just things that happen innately in people. So those things are still going to happen. There's still going to be a 13-year-old girl that gets photographed by a photographer. Um, and what happened between Roman and the 13-year-old girl is going to keep happening in this town. I know they're doing all they can to, to stop it with this Me Too movement and taking down a lot of photographers and, and people of that ilk, but I, I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's. I think since, since this business began, there are things that women do to become stars, and there are men that present opportunities for those women. Now, I know 13 is way too young, but um, it's still going to happen. If you bring a kid into the lion's den, and she's going to get eaten up. Right.
1: Yeah, it's too bad there's just not real responsible adults in no. charge that are monitoring them and make sure those things don't happen. But you're right. It just... It there depends. should be.
0: You would, you would think that we don't need somebody to monitor it. You would think that people just inherently know this is wrong. Mm-hmm. But some really crazy stuff happens, not to every man and not to every girl, but to certain people. There's an electricity, there's a chemistry, and then there's also that behavior that a pedophile or a man who has those kind of desires knows how to treat his subject and talk to his subject to get what he wants. And that's something that we've got to put somebody in between to make sure that doesn't happen, because that has been so prevalent. I mean, I, I forget what studio head had this but i mean i think shirley temple was wheeled out every week to satisfy whether it was Louis b Mayer or daryl zanuck it was somebody but i don't you you can't tell me that shirley temple got through her career without being molested or felt or touched or you, give me a break yeah. no way no way
1: it's there's nothing new under the sun right It's just too bad no, of course mm-hmm. not right. absolutely not exactly so I just really want to thank you for coming on and giving us some of these stories that I know that you're so great at sharing with us. Oh,
0: that's no problem. Call me anytime you want.
1: If you can really quickly just tell people about your show and where they can find it.
0: My show is called Fame is a Bitch. It's on iTunes, or you can Google it. Um, Basically, I thought I was going to do a scandal every week. I thought I'd delve into different Hollywood scandals, whether it was Roman Polanski or Fatty Arbuckle or Tupac or Peg Entwistle or Black Dahlia. I think I'll touch on all of those scandals, but right now there's so much stuff coming out of Hollywood with the Me Too movement and the pedophilia and Harvey Weinstein that every single day there's at least two or three news items that I'm dying to sink my teeth into and talk about. And since I've been running around this industry since the Early 90s, I know a lot of people on both coasts. I know the people who make the movies, who star in the movies, who protect the stars. And as a result, I can intertwine my personal stories with breaking news. So right now, it's, it's, it's a good time to be me because <laughs> Hollywood is run amuck right now.
1: In 2017, Samantha Gailey, whose married name is now Geimer, filed a request in a Los Angeles court to dismiss the case against Polanski. In 1988, she had sued Polanski alleging sexual assault, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and seduction. The case was finally settled out of court in 1993 for $500,000. In 2003, Samantha was quoted as saying in an interview, Straight up, what he did to me was wrong, but I wish he would return to America so the whole ordeal can be put to rest for both of us. He made a terrible mistake, but he's paid for it. In 2008, she said, I don't think he's a danger to society. I don't think he needs to be locked up forever. It was 30 years ago. It's an unpleasant memory, but I can live with it. In his 1984 autobiography, Polanski acknowledged that he caused Gailey, quote, considerable pain, but he still maintained that the sex was consensual. He has been married for 28 years and has two children. He continues to direct films. His wife, Emmanuel starred in his last movie, Based on a True Story, released in 2017. His daughter, Morgan Polanski, is also an actress and can be seen in the television series Vikings on the History Channel. Roman Polanski is now 84 years old. It is unlikely he will ever face justice in the United States. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.